You are listening to Moving On With Pain, the podcast. This podcast is presented by the Danish Society for Pain and Physiotherapy. This episode is created with and for the European Pain Federation, EFIC. If you'd like to watch the following content in video format, you can visit the EFIC Facebook page and head to videos. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So once again, we're here from the European Pain Conference in Valencia. Uh, in the studio, we're doing Facebook Live with Professor Pierre Hansen. My name is Dr. Morten Hu, and I'm a clinical scientist slash clinician slash I don't know what. But I'm here because I'm the vice chair of the educational committee for the European Federation or Pain Federation. And what we want to do is talk to you, Pierre, because you are a plenary speaker. And you're going to talk, talk to all the people here. So that's what a plenary is. You're going to talk to all of the people here, which means that you have something very important to say. So the EFIC, or the European Pain Federation, has decided that why not give that out to, the, to everyone who wants to hear it? So rather than talking to scientists, what we're going to do is we're going to talk to each other, but we're going to stay in a language that is without the lingo or the mm. jargon that mm. scientists usually use. So with that short introduction, it's my pleasure to invite uh, Professor Pierre Hansen here. You are now currently a professor in Oslo, but you were originally, you are from Sweden, and you did all your training there. Yeah. And as I said before, I think it's nice that I don't know anyone who started out at dentist in 1997. Uh, uh, sorry, 1979. 79, actually. sorry. Yeah, way back. And, and then went to medical school and got your medical degree, so MD, in 1986. Yeah, right. And then kept on working. So you trained as a neurologist after that, right? Mm-hmm. And how long does it take for a person to be so for a doctor to become a neurologist? At the t- uh, at the time, it was a four-year um, four-year program. Thing, yeah. So at that time, you were doing only patients, or did you do research on the side I there did, as well? I did do research in neurology at the time. My PhD was in physiology, so uh, yeah. I so turned you, to neurology. You finished your, your physiology in 1980. Sorry, you did that before, actually. You finished yes. your PhD in 1985. Yeah. So a year before you became a doctor. Exactly. And that was in physiology. Yeah. What was the topic? The topic was afferent stimulation and pain relief. How to relieve pain by blocking the pain system by natural stimuli, yeah. such as vibration and, and electrical stimulation of, of uh, different body areas. And how would you say since 1985, how has that topic, that stimulating the, what we could call the periphery, so the nerves in the arms or legs or back or skin, how has that developed since you left it or since you did your PhD? It hasn't scientifically developed the way that I hoped. Uh, and uh, one sign is that I actually get referred quite often when it comes to the papers that I published in the early 80s. So I think it, this has to be um, up, up, up and going again. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to talk more about this, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll cut you down there. Yeah. Um, so currently, you work both as a neurologist, so seeing, I would say, real patients, all patients are real, of course, but you're yeah. not seeing them for the purpose of research. You're seeing them to help patients, right? And for the purpose of research. That, and that's for the, the only way that we can sort of recruit patients to projects. That's my seeing patients yeah. that are that do fulfill the inclusion and exclusion, or not the exclusion criteria, yeah. for going into different studies. So, can you explain to us, what is an inclusion criteria? 
Um, you and have to have, have you have to have a specific symptom or a specific pain condition in order to be able to be eligible to be included in a study. Yeah. And if you have an exclusion criteria which is fulfilled, which means that you cannot take part, it could be just that you're um, 80 plus, and we don't recruit patients that are above 79 in some of our studies. So, so basically, in order for for someone to be seen by you, they would have some sort of disease in the nervous system, is that correct? Either a disease or an injury. Or an injury. So it could be patients with uh, a stroke, and in the aftermath of the stroke, they develop a pain conditions, which is directly caused by the lesion in the brain. Or it could be a patient with a peripheral nerve injury, or a, a, a diabetes with complications from the nervous system. So what is a typical peripheral nerve injury? How do you get one of those? Uh, it could be work-related. Yeah. Um, let me, okay, let me paraphrase that because I was actually wanting to ask another question. It just came up wrong. So is it easy to damage your nervous system? Is it something you do if you, like, say, bend over or something? No. What no. if you sit on your nerves all day? Would that damage your nerves? No, it doesn't because you're going to move before you damage it because there are warning signals built into the system that will make you change your position and so on. So, so in order to damage, you really have to cut or, or during surgery. So I see a lot of patients, you know, where the, the nerve injury is due to surgical procedures. Yeah. So some surgical procedures can't be done. Yeah, Unavoidable. they can't be done without yeah. cutting the neurons. Like cancer surgery, for example, you have to remove the tumor. The tumor is in it's invading the nervous system, so you have to take out part of the nervous system as well, and that might create a painful problem. Now, it's really important to realize that most injuries and most diseases of the nervous system does not uh, is not paralleled by pain. Oh, by neuropathic pain. So a lot of patients would so have So it's a small proportion, small yeah. proportion that do have a nerve injury or a disease of the nervous system and pain uh, as a parallel. Could you could you talk me through if if I was a patient and you expected me to have a nerve damage, not not a pain related to a nerve damage, but a nerve damage in my leg. What would you do? How would you test it? Well, first of all, uh, as a neurologist, obviously I have to know and be aware of the anatomy of the nervous system in that specific uh, extremity. And based on the way that the nerve goes down into the extremity, I know whether it innervates only uh, the skin or even muscles. So some, some nerves only innervate skin. And, and innervate no... means they give life to or they receive yeah, this is why you have, input This from is why you have sensations from, yeah. from your skin while stroking it or pinching it. Yeah. Um, and some of the nerves, again, go to muscles. So if you have a, a damage to a nerve that goes to a skin and muscle, you will have um, a paresis, which means that you will have muscle weakness and, and also symptoms from, from the skin. So by detailing the, uh, the distribution of the injured nerve, I can, I, I can tell what's, what's going on. Yeah. What's, the, what's the reason for the injury? And I, I, I once saw you do this at a, uh, at a pain school in Italy. Okay. So, one of the, so the European Pain Federation, yeah. as you know, yeah. because yeah, you've yeah. been involved yeah. this, do these and, and you would be on faculty. And mm -hmm. I was once a student in one of these. Mm -hmm. And I saw you do an examination of a patient who had uh, been drinking heavily for many years. 
And it was interesting to see that you did different tests and had different results depending on where on the lake you tested him. Exactly. I, I'm sure you can't remember the patient. Oh, yes, I do remember him vividly. Uh, and he had what we call a polyneuropathy. Poly meaning many, and neuropathy, uh, damaged nerve. Uh, so, uh, and the reason was uh, a drinking problem. So he has an alcohol-induced nerve Because injury. alcohol is toxic, but it, also alcohol, it, it... Yeah, it also makes... means that you don't... You don't eat well, you have vitamin deficiencies yeah. in parallel with your drinking. Yeah. So there are many reasons for the nerve injury. So this is a disease that affects uh, both legs, uh, usually, uh, starting in the, in, in the toes and then slowly creeping up the lower legs to the thighs. And then it can involve your, your fingers and hands as well. And, and is there different types of um, stimulus you can do? So I remember you pinching yeah. or pricking with a needle and touching with cotton butts. And, and how does that relate to a patient? Since we have uh, different senses, such as touch and vibration, uh, the sensation of warmth and cold and heat pain and cold pain and mechanical pain from a needle, for example, we tend to examine quite a few of those uh, senses in order to delineate the extent of the dysfunction of the nervous system, of the sensory nervous system. Yeah. Because pain is part of the sensory nervous system. So we put a lot more emphasis on sensation than on motor function, such as strength and uh, lack of weakness, and also what we call autonomic alterations, which means that we can have an alteration in the blood flow, in the sweating pattern, in that specific painful area. But the, the most important thing from a diagnostic perspective is to have those uh, sensation deficits and abnormalities. Yeah. So That's again, one, of the, one of the big signs that you need to fulfill in order to be able to discuss a diagnosis of neuropathic pain. Yeah, so if, if a patient has a damage, so the most patients who have damage, they would just lose the sensation. So when you touch them gently, They say, I can't feel it. Is that yeah, right? Or partially, partially, or partially, I can feel it, but yeah. less than if you on the test other on the other or, side. And maybe or it's only a sensation of, of something lukewarm. Yeah. And, mm. and they can have touch normal. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. yeah. So this is what you do. And then some, sometimes they also have pain. And that is what you call then a neuropathic pain, right? That's a neuropathic pain. It's a, Which is then different from a neuropathy. It's, uh, neuropathy doesn't say anything about whether it's painful or not. Okay. And actually, again, I believe I mentioned it, that most neuropathies are painless. Yeah. So it's the very few minority of patients yeah. that you have a neuropathy and pain as a parallel to that condition. Yeah. And why that is so, we don't have a good handle on at mm -hmm. the moment. So coming back to, so surgery is definitely a risk factor, um, but you can still have a surgery with good results. So it's not that all surgery gives you chronic pain. Absolutely not. Pain. Absolutely not. It's still a minority, but there are some surgeries that give more and some give less, is that correct? Yes. We know a few uh, surgical interventions that have a higher risk of uh, uh, carrying uh, with it a neuropathic pain condition afterwards. Yeah. Sometimes long-term, sometimes only in the acute phase after surgery. Yeah. So why it becomes a chronic one in few patients, we don't know. 
this is still something that we have to, uh, to and, research. And this actually, I think, is a good time for me to ask you, because I know this is something related to this that you're going to talk about in your plenary talk. So would you, would you, I know it's not until Saturday, but would you tell us in, in sort of layman terms, what are you going to tell at that plenary? The title of the plenary is Neuropathic Pain, What Went Wrong? This means that something is wrong. So what is wrong? Well, the, the, the vast majority of my patients, and, and there are thousands of them over the years, have not responded with good enough pain relief to the available measures, including medication and what we call central neurostimulation, where you can actually stimulate the central nervous system with a weak electrical current to engage uh, pain-relieving systems that we have within the central nervous system. But again, most patients are disappointed with the drugs. They may have severe side effects, and uh, the neurostimulation techniques doesn't do the trick in all patients either. Actually, just a minority. Yeah, we just had a talk to Professor Dirk de Rida from okay. uh, Belgium and yeah. Ottawa in, yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. And he says exactly the same thing. So the, the methods I use now are not up-to-date. They can be better, yeah. but it takes a lot more software, as you call it, so a, a lot more adaptation. So my talk is really uh, focused on translational aspects of neuropathic pain, i.e. what has been brought from the animal laboratory to the clinical scenario. And I'm disappointed to say that for patients with neuropathic pain, it amounts to nothing for more than 30 years. So then you would probably ask me, so what kind of treatments are available at this point in time? Yeah. Well, all of them were actually borrowed from other therapeutic areas. So we use anti-epileptics, we yeah. use antidepressants, and this is not because the patients have an epilepsy or, or are, are depressed, this is because the, the, the mechanism of action of the drug, the way the drug works in your body, may actually uh, be similar to what we need to relieve neuropathic pain. But they, we are not doing well. So I give you an example. One of the drugs that was introduced uh, 15 years ago, Lyrica or pregabalin, which is the generic name, uh, you have to treat seven patients in order to have one to respond with a significant, to that patient, a significant pain relief. So it's one out of seven. And is it, that's what a study says. Is this what you see in the clinic as well? Uh, that's what we see in the clinic as yeah, well. Yeah. So we are disappointed and the patients are disappointed. And the reason why we have had so little delivery from, from the preclinical scenario, the, the animal researchers to the clinic, is that I believe that uh, the models where the scientists aim to induce a painful condition in the animal probably doesn't. And the way that they try to tease out whether the animal is in pain is in my mind also of, um, of it, it's, it's, it's not relevant. And this is something that I'm going to talk about in depth on uh, doing so, my plenary on, on, so on let, Saturday. Let me see if I get this. So I don't know, I'm, I'm 
maybe I'm saying more than you're saying, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the animal models you refer to would be, for instance, to take an animal, a rodent, a rat or a mouse, and then opening up and local, localizing the ischemic nerve, uh, ischias nerve that goes down the leg, and then tying it up with a string. For example, waiting for there are many while. ways of injury. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, but that could be one. And then what we do is we induce a, something that makes the mouse or rat walk differently or behave differently compared to when they didn't have this injury, constraining injury. True. And then, if I understand you correct, what you're saying is that maybe that doesn't represent what our patients feel. Is exactly. that correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, if I'm right, and I'm going to give a number of more detailed arguments, um, then we are really in trouble, aren't we? Then we've been doing the wrong thing for more than three decades. And then we have to do something about it, and I'm not the one to solve the entire problem. But I, I, I certainly believe that, that we need to collaborate academia and industry and, and clinical scientists to discuss what could be changed in order to more relevantly reflect what is going on in the clinical situation, i.e. what the patients are suffering. From. And I know you speak from an inside view, but I would say those three are already collaborating, but you mean collaborating differently or to a greater extent, or what to, do you mean? Yeah, they have to sit down and go back and analyze why didn't we have the outcome that we were expecting yeah. to get. Yeah. Did we do something wrong? What? And yeah. then try to refine it. So it could be the models, it could be the way we go about it, it could be the measurements we use, it could be anything in, in it, between. It could be, and so it's, it's this is exactly what I'm going to yeah. discuss. So a household cleaning. Yeah, household cleaning, but, but again, I'm not going to give the final answers because this, uh, this is a, a far too big question for one individual to even, to even try to solve. Yeah, yeah. okay. That's, that's very interesting. And, and I, uh, I told you beforehand that one of the things that I find really interesting, for lack of a better term, is that there's not really any studies out there how exercise, for instance, has an effect on neuropathic pain. So I would say, you were saying that medicines don't work, and of course we should continue to develop them. I would obviously agree with you, but why not also do a much bigger effort to see how can cognitive behavioral therapies, how can um, exercise, how can occupational uh, interaction, so learning people how to engage with, with life activities despite their pain, how is that not a relevant target? Two things. Uh, first of all, um, I believe that since, since I believe that the models might be wrong and the testing, the behavioral testing of the animals might be incorrect, it might be that we have thrown a lot of babies out with the bathwater during uh, 30 plus years because we've been doing the wrong thing. So perhaps we should also go back and revisit some of those old drugs that we flushed uh, and tested when we have refined the model and the testing procedures. So that's one thing. So it doesn't really have to be a big thing. It would just be very considerate. So well, thinking, I think the big thing is yeah. to, you know, we're not able to speak to rodents. We can communicate with humans. Uh, so the big thing is going to be to have a unified view on how to create a painful situation in the animal which 
reflects what is going on in the human. And all the drugs that we have borrowed from other areas, and I just would like to mention this, none of them actually attack the initiation and the maintenance, those mechanisms that create the ongoing activity in the nervous system, which is experienced as pain, that all the drugs and all the neuromodulation techniques that we have, they try to, to just lower in a non-selective way hyperexcitability in the nervous so, system. So but the nervous they don't system attack. Is, is going, so it's hyperactive. And, yes. And they're all just toning it down. Toning it down. They're not really going for the... And they are sort of unspecifically toning it down also. So you have side effects. You're getting tired, yeah. you know, and uh, have difficulties concentrating and stuff like that. So we need drugs that really attack um, um, the reason for the activity set up in the nervous system. Now, regarding exercise, that's fine with me. I think it should be studied. But again, it's just another approach which doesn't uh, take into account the underlying mechanisms of initiation and maintenance. It's just like neurostimulation. Because you know, uh, as a physio, I mean, just as I do that, that uh, exercise might increase endogenous uh, morphine-like substances that are within our central nervous system and that might might uh, also lower excitability. But again, it doesn't do anything with the, with the, with the, with the true mechanisms of why the pain is on. That's interesting. Um, there's so many things I would like to talk to you about, but just on a final note, just to put things in perspective, do you remember any of the things that we talked about, what happened in 1985 when you got your PhD? We talked about it before. Do you remember any of them? Live Aid? Live Aid. Live Aid was one of them. And that I is remember good because that. that is also a neurological test for your intact uh, uh, memory, isn't it? So <laughs> I think we can safely assume that all you're saying is, is good memorized and it's been a pleasure having you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much, Morten. Thank you.